Welcome to the 66th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled The Forest, America in the 1830s, art historian Alexander Nemiroff explores the Hudson River School painters and their contemporaries, focusing on what their art did and did not show of the teeming world around them. The forest serves as a metaphor for the unruly and wooded realms of lived experience to which art can only gesture. The lectures present a fundamentally new account of Thomas Cole, John Quidor, James Fenimore Cooper, and other artists and writers of that time. This sixth lecture, entitled The Forest of Thought, On the Roof with Robert Montgomery Bird, was originally delivered by Professor Nemiroff at the National Gallery of Art on May 7, 2017. Bird, author of the bloodthirsty frontier novel Nick of the Woods, published in 1837, turned late in his life to photography, making pictures in 1852 to 1853 from the roof of his Philadelphia home. Austere and eerie, Bird's depopulated photographs of Philadelphia rooftops ruminate in Poe-like fashion on artistic isolation and private thought. They also strangely call to mind Bird's fascination with split skulls and brains, the preferred mode of murder in Nick of the Woods. How do the heights of the head and the heights of the building both portray the attic of the mind, the seemingly unrepresentable forest of thought? The greatest dream of representation, if it would portray life itself, would be to catch fleeting thought on the wing. Okay, welcome um, to the last of my six Mellon lectures. My name is Alexander Nemirov. I've been talking about the forest, America in the 1830s. And today I'll be talking about uh, the forest of thought. As you'll recall, my goal throughout these lectures has been to see about, to explore that, that intimate and kind of mystical place wherein art and life are actually supposed to coincide and to trace the historical um, incidents of that in the time and place I explore in these lectures, but also to think really about their ongoing relevance for us now. And um, thinking about more broadly and encompassing that is really an attempt on my part through these lectures and the book that will result in them to, result from them to, to make a world, to envision a long ago time as a time in which um, a multitude of characters with a multitude of motivations often mixed came together and split apart and how the art and the writing is, if you like, a kind of sedimentary record of those in a way still living um, um, experiences. And among the many tracks of that life and art uh, I've explored have been, say, the worlds of animals. But I think today uh, is, in a way, the most elusive um, prey or beast, not, not to kill and not to capture, but just to see, to kind of see on the wing. And that is thought, like consciousness, as it was then, as a part of life, and that might be imagined to be still 
palpable as not having undergone this fateful fossilization in literature and in art, but to be still living on the page or on the canvas. Just the quicksilver of thought or the forest of thought. And my figure I nominate to take us into this world will seem to you to be uh, strange and his work to be perhaps somewhat obscurely related to what I've just sketched out. The figure is a man named Robert Montgomery Byrd, who made this photograph on the roof of his home in the 900 block of Filbert Street in downtown Philadelphia in 1852 or 53. Robert Montgomery Byrd, who is featured in, as one of the photographers in Diane Wagoner's current exhibition at the National Gallery called East of the Mississippi, but who is not a well-known figure, and indeed whose entire corpus consists of 176 images he made in an experimental vein between January of 1852 and August of 1853. Um, all of these are at the Library Company in Philadelphia. They came to that place donated by a relative of Bird's, a descendant, in 1992. Many of them depict, I would say rather hauntingly, just what I've described with the one on the right, that is just the rooftops to the front and back of Byrd's own residence. Byrd was born in 1806, so he was in his mid-40s when he made these pictures. He died not long after in 1854. Occasionally, and these are negatives, there are mostly negatives in the collections, more, some, a, a lot of positives, but not as many. Um, some of his other pictures he used by having taught himself this paper negative to paper positive technique, which very few people in America knew how to do, were of the Delaware Water or River Gap. Um, uh, this photograph on the left, for example, by Byrd was likely taken on August 3rd, 1853, during a sojourn there with his wife, Mary. But also works of art, um, in prints that he would photograph um, and get a kind of eerie effect from, like this angel on the left. So there's Robert Montgomery Byrd. There he's working in the 1850s. And so immediately the question becomes, well, what does this have to do with the forest? And also, uh, what does it have to do with thought? And so let's begin now to pursue both of those matters. Here is the title page of a novel that Byrd wrote in 1837 called Nick of the Woods, uh, A Tale of Kentucky. And indeed, Byrd's primary uh, way he was known in his life, he was really polymathic, but he was mainly known as a novelist and even a very successful novelist on a, a, a rival to uh, James Fenimore Cooper, though Cooper is the one who is really remembered now. But at the time, Bird uh, really made his mark by uh, creating a more violent frontier narrative than Cooper's more, um, let's say, heroic and noble and halcyon narrative. So I'm going to take you through three representative patch passages from Nick of the Woods, which is a tale you'll see quickly in what Herman Melville was later to coin the metaphysics of Indian hating revenge, racial hatred, like pure, unadulterated uh, frontier animosity. So here is 
one such passage, they, um, you know, so a, a group of settlers who's coming out from Virginia to Kentucky, this is said in the past, they beheld with horror the body of a savage of vast and noble proportions lying on its face across the roots of the tree and glued, it might almost be said, to the earth by a mass of congealed blood that had issued from the scalp an axe-cloven skull. He, that is Nathan Slaughter, who is the kind of anti-hero of Nick of the Woods, who despite his name is a Quaker, uh, but in fact his name is in incredibly appropriate actually because although very mild-mannered, he in fact, uh, like the proverbial murderer next door, um, harbors deep uh, and definitely acted upon violent fantasies of revenge against the Indians who killed his entire family uh, on the frontier many years before. He, Nathan Slaughter, rushed against the advancing Shawnee, so an individual warrior, dealing him a blow with the butt of his heavy-stocked rifle that crushed through skull and brain as through a gourd, killing the man on the spot. Bird originally trained as a physician in Philadelphia and References to skulls and brains are coming partly out of that. Uh, and then in the ultimate revenge scene at the end of the novel, um, Nathan Slaughter sets upon the Indian chief who's done the violence in person to his family long ago. And with that, leaping upon the astounded chief, he tore the iron tomahawk from his grasp, the chief's grasp. He bore him to the earth, clinging to him as he fell, and using the rested weapon with such furious haste and skill that before they had yet reached the ground, he had buried it in the Indian's brain. Nathan, leaving the shattered skull, then dashed the tomahawk into the Indian's chest, snatched the scalping knife from the belt, and with one grinding sweep of the blade and one fierce jerk of his arm, the gray, lock, the gray scalp lock of the warrior was torn from his dishonored head. So just to pause now, you know, we, we don't expect the past to be polite, and if any, if any of, um, you know, if, if I should have presented things only in a mild way through the course of these lectures, I would have failed in my aim to present a worldview. What we have to understand as we just take a moment here is, if you like the story we could be portraying is a man given to, that is, Bird, the author, to the portrayal of this kind of violence, which it's true you would never see in Cooper, uh, has somehow made it out into some other world which is, let's say, more dispassionate. And if you wanted to get proof of that, you'd probably say that Bird's emphasis on skulls and brains and race is entirely of its time and place. That is, in Philadelphia and known to Bird was his fellow scientist and even indeed an inventor of scientific racism as it continues to exist, a man named Samuel Morton, who in 1839 published a book there in Philadelphia called Crania Americana, and this is one of the plates in it. And the, uh, the thesis of Crania Americana and the subsequent works that Morton published about skulls is that skull size determines um, intellect and that it was simply a matter of science, science, of calipers and so on, to determine that, say, Native Americans, and this says from a mound on the upper Mississippi, and Morton had many skull collectors out there, including John Kirk Townsend, who was one of Audubon's 
bird collectors, as you'll remember, delivering him these skulls that Native Americans had just genetically different skulls and hence lower intellects. And from this, it follows in the kind of true um, kind of um, basis for these theories, uh, an idea of polygenesis, not monogenesis, polygenesis with all the races having come from separate Adams and Eves, which had a degree of currency, certainly in the buildup to the American Civil War. So if you were just to say, looking at these two images, you'd say, well, again, that bird has come from a place of being sort of bound up with Morton and this um, scientific racism out into something that is, if still strange, at least not really determinable by some kind of racist or racial matrix. So let's just pause at that though and say that maybe there's something more to it, to these photographs as well. And it has to do with skulls and brains in a way that Morton might not have recognized and that's more peculiar to Bird. Just look at other passages from Nick of the Woods. Brain is a word that shows up so much in that book. The exulting consciousness produced such a fever of delight in his brain as was only to be allayed by the most extravagant expressions and actions. And this is on Bird, the polymath's part, a kind of um, primitive psychology, if you like, or a study of what makes us act the way, I, way we do, um, what makes thoughts stir in the brain. It was with, with such wild entreaties that Edith, one of the characters, agitated by an excitement that seemed almost to have unsettled her brain, still urged Teeley not to abandon her. And then from Bird's widow's unpublished biography of her husband, published many years later in 1945 from her papers at the University of Pennsylvania. This anecdote of the novelist's childhood is always struck out or stuck out in my mind. Once, tumbling head foremost on the glassy surface of a frozen pond, his half-cracked skull impressed a star of such beauty and regularity as set him half wild with delight in spite of the heavy pain. That seems to me a fundamentally aesthetic statement having to do with um, romantic notions about pain and childhood and primal scenes delivering, you know, as against somewhat of our myths and stereotypes of what artistry really is. Um, stars of beauty and regularity, order, and you know, the bats in the belfry up here, the uh, notion of who and what is going on, you might say, upstairs or in the attic or skull of the brain or the brain of the house is of course also a matter of architectonics and regularities and restraints and even a kind of civilized reserve if you take the whole townscape into elaboration. Regularity, beauty, clarity, you can't believe you made it on accident actually. It comes though from your fall, from your pain. I think this is getting a little bit about at Bird's psychodynamics, not just of artistic creation, but of, of life. And that actually brings me to the novel of his that probably has the most currency and which is indeed in print now as of a 2008 New York Review of Books um, issuing of it. It's a novel called Shepherd Lee. 
which you can see is published in 1836. It says written by himself, but we shouldn't be fooled by that. It is written by Robert Montgomery Byrd as the librarian uh, notes there. Uh, this is not a frontier novel. It is definitely a novel of consciousness, of brains and skulls, however. What is it a story of? It's a story of what Edgar Allan Poe, who loved this novel, reviewed it very favorably, uh, called, like others, metempsychosis, which is the transmigration of souls from one body into another. So in this novel, Shepard Lee is a kind of nondescript, disappointed, um, figure in Philadelphia who um, is really upset with his life. He's thinking about ending it all, but just by happenstance, he sees that a wealthy, dyspeptic landowner named John Higginson has just died near him one day, quite by accident. And who knows by what power, but Shepard Lee then transmigrates into the body of John Higginson who uh, lived from the inside seemingly is great because the guy's got a lot of money, servants, but it's really lousy being John Higginson. And it turns out that John Higginson then encounters uh, a figure named um, Abram, or I'm sorry, a dandy, a penniless dandy named I. Dulmer Dulkin, uh, Dawkins, I, I. period Dulmer Dawkins, who Seems like, you know, exactly the kind of person one would want to encounter. Dawkins happens to die too. Shepard Lee, as John Higginson goes into Dawkins' body, comes out, and now he's the penniless dandy, the kind of fop. That doesn't work out. Then <laughs> Shepard Lee, uh, through the process I've been describing, becomes um, um, a, a money lender, a real miserly figure, a very horrid person named Abram Skinner a.k.a. Old Goldfist. Uh, not, not great being Abram Skinner. Then Shepard Lee becomes Zachariah Longstraw, a kind of naive Quaker philanthropist who, while minding his own business and not having any particular ideas about slavery one way or the other, is captured by slave catchers up north who, disappointed in finding actual escaped slaves, decide that they'll kidnap this Quaker, um, Quaker philanthropist, represent him as an abolitionist, bring him down south, and take a ransom for his hanging. Zachariah Longstraw is transported to the south, whereupon by one accident or another he becomes the Tom, the slave, who then becomes a dissipated Virginia aristocrat named Arthur Megram, who then becomes, through plot machinations I will not detain you by describing um, Shepard Lee, who is glad to be back in his own body, <laughs> or in his own dwelling. And this is a novel that has a lot to do with social mobility, questions that are, of course, hugely relevant to us as they were in the 1830s. You mean I don't have a soul? You mean it's very permeable? You mean I could invent myself anew tomorrow? The anti-Emerson, this is exactly the same year as Nature by Emerson, but it's a completely antithetical, and some might say much more relevant to us now, concept of selfhood, namely that it's a myth, and it's very fluid. So, you know, when I look at Shepard Lee and read some of the quotations, you know, I'm seeing this psychological focus again, and this is in now the voice of Tom, the slave, near the end of the book, 
and clearly this is coming out of now Turner's Rebellion from 1831, I began to have sentimental notions about liberty and equality, the dignity of man, the nobleness of freedom, and so forth, and a stupid ambition, a vague notion that I was born to be a king or president of some such, or some such great personage filled my imagination and made me a willing listener to and sharer in the schemes of violence and desperation which my fellow slaves soon began to frame. It is wonderful among, that among the many thoughts that now crowded my brain, no memory of my original condition arose to teach me the folly of my desires. So it's a very cagey description of slavery. Tom is, uh, has learned to read and has read an abolitionist pamphlet and that has led him on the path to this uh, Nat Turner style rebellion. But many thoughts that now crowded my brain is maybe the key thing to begin to correlate with this as we think about consciousness. And what one of my mentors, Naomi Lebowitz, uh, would call writers who are uh, scholars of consciousness, who are trying to get thought on the page. I think Byrd, in his own way, was doing that. Here's Shepard Lee as Arthur Megram, the dissipated Virginia aristocrat. Again, this is this kind of pre-Freudian mindscape. My dreams indeed so varied and terrific were the images with which they afflicted me. I can compare to nothing but the horrors or last delirium of a toper. Hanging, drowning, and tumbling down church steeples uh, were the common and least frightful of the fancies that crowded my sleeping brain. So the, I think I prefer the negatives to the positives in in birds photography because they have that quality of sleep, but certainly with the church steeples, there's a sense of the architectonics of thought. Um, now I was blown up in a steamboat or run over by a railroad car. Now I was stricken fast or sticking fast in a burning chimney, scorching and smothering. And now downwards in a hollow tree, with a bear below snapping at my nose. Now I was plastered up in a thick wall with masons hard at work running the superstructure up higher. So finally, as we deal in this, these metaphors of the architecture of thought and the home of the brain and the home of the mind and of the self, Shepard Lee, as Shepard Lee, in Bird Shepard Lee, says at the end, what other notions may have crowded my brain, what feelings may have entered my bosom, I'm now unable to describe. He's just so relieved to be himself again. The sight of my body thus restored to me, and in the midst of my sorrow and affliction, inviting me, as it were, back to my proper home, threw me into an indescribable ferment, let me live again in my own body, and never, no, never more in another's. So if we say there is Robert Montgomery Bird in, in, a, in a kind of um, picture of the kind that you or I might be forgiven for walking directly past in some pantheon of worthies now forgotten from the 19th century, we can see how limited, how superficial is that genre, at least usually, that we call the portrait as a delineator of personality. I'm sorry, but it is, in fact, it would give you very little clue, one might even say no clue, of any of the, of the mysteries or machinations I've spoken of. Whereas this, to me, would seem like a far more, though I don't pretend now to unpack it for you or elucidate it for you, a far more mysterious uh, portrayal of where he lives, or as Bird was fond of saying about the soul, um, One's, one's dwelling, he called it a dwelling or tenement. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, from gentleman to gentleman, you might just say, well, there's the gentleman and there's where he lives, and part of being a gentleman is to have this polymathic ability with words and images, and maybe that's all there is to it, but I feel if we are not soul blind to the cries and little sounds that come to us from the past, we'd have to say that this cache of photographs at the library company in Philadelphia is remarkable for its power to delineate, not just for Bird, but for all of us, the attic of ourselves, the roof of ourselves, with its complete lexicon of um, altitudinous thoughts that, or rare thoughts, I might even say in an Emerson way, that we could never express even to our friends because they're too private, too much where we dwell, too crazy, if you like. And then also the, the amazing architecture that we each of us possess um, and that constitutes our edge points or our delimitations or our reasons to go on living and not falling, you might say. Um, the hat, the, the top story of the thinker. You'll recall this photograph or this image which is of Thomas Cole's hat, the very hat uh, that I showed in the second lecture. The tallness of it, the extension of the body, the implication of the brain, Abraham Lincoln, that's part of his iconography for sure going forward. Again, the difference between the gentlemanly deportment, Kempt and together, um, the eggshell thin thinness of the brain presenting to itself, uh, presenting to the world this kind of harmony of dignity and achievement. Yes, that's all right, but again, I would say if we wanted to go into the laboratory of thought, we'd say, it has something more to do with the work on the right. Now I show you this Cole hat again, and Cole does come to my mind because this is a Thomas Cole painting from the 1830s, from 1837 in fact, called The, v the View of Florence from San Miniato, a uh, painting that's now at the Cleveland Museum of Art that's quite large, um, three by five feet. And you can see in viewing Cole's vista of the rooftops of Florence that he, like Byrd, is interested in the civic sphere, in the peaceful smoking chimney contentment of like an organized society, the architectonics of um, social order, uh, blessed by God with plenty of the sky given over or plenty of the canvas given over to the wan and beautiful light that reflects on the Arno. So, all well and good, but I now want to introduce a third character into our story, our drama of mind or of consciousness, and it is to say, as we look at Cole's picture now, large, that you'll never guess in whose family this painting was. Um, not in the 1830s, but very soon afterward, in the 1840s, was in the family of the young Henry James, the novelist, who was born in 1843. And it actually occupied a front room of their house in New York. And this is what Henry James recalled about this painting in 1913 when he published his autobiography called A Small Boy and Others three years before his death. James said, Ah, and he's recalling everything. The ample canvas of Mr. Cole, the American Turner. 
which covered half a side of our front parlor, so five feet across was half, this, half of a side, and in which, though not an object in it, began to stand out after the manner of Mr. Leutze, so the painting, painter of Washington Crossing the Delaware, I could always lose myself as soon as look. It depicted Florence from one of the neighboring hills, Florence with her domes and towers and old walls, the old walls Mr. Cole had engaged for, so that Cole had so wanted to see on his first trip to Italy, which occasioned this picture. It comes to me again today, at the end of time, that the contemplative monk seated on a terrace in the foreground, and I love this, a constant friend of my childhood, must have been of the convent of San Miniato, and James then goes on to say he doesn't know what's become of this painting, it was actually later owned by his brother Robertson, and it's now, as I say, in the Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, James is our key here because he's going to introduce us to some other aspect of dreaming, thinking, remembering here, and it has to do actually with a another particular anecdote that James remembers from his childhood and that he expresses in A Small Boy and Others, though it's not about this painting, but it directly finally bears on it and my topic today. And what is that incident? Well, let's find out. He's recalling going up to Rhinebeck in New York to stay with his cousins. He recalls the year as being 1854, so when he, James, was 11. And he's there with his cousins, one of whom was named Marie who was so named because she was born in Paris and she had dark hair and dark eyes. And um, James is just in A Small Boy and Others is recalling a remark from my uncle Augustus to his daughter Marie. You know, there they are late at night in the house on Rhinebeck, seated duskily in our group, which included two or three dim dependent forms, that is the kids. He, Augustus, expressed the strong opinion that Marie should go to bed. It had, been it had been remarked, but in the air, I feel sure that Marie should seek her couch. I love that. A truth, and this is also great, James, a truth by the dark wing of which I ruefully felt myself brushed. <laughs> right, so it's time to go to bed. Someone else might say, well, it's time to go to bed, but this has mystic implications, and I bet on a Sunday afternoon in Washington, I've actually got you sincerely and deeply interested in what's going to happen next. Henry James was, if you don't need me to tell you, um, a great writer. What I have retained of their effect, that is the effect of Uncle Augustus's words, is the vague fact of some objection raised by my cousin and some sharper point to his sentence supplied by her father, promptly merged in a visible commotion, a flutter of my young companion, so Marie, across the gallery as for refuge in the maternal arms, a protest and, a, and an appeal, in short, which drew from my aunt the simple phrase that was from that moment so preposterously to count for me. Come now, my dear, don't make a scene. I insist on your not making a scene. So for me, I find it funny that Henry James, the future novelist, would perk up at the phrase, this phrase which he had never heard before of making a scene or don't, making, don't make a scene. And he goes on to say, 
That was all the witchcraft the occasion used, but the note was nonetheless epoch-making. The expression, so vivid, so portentous, was one I had never heard. It seemed freighted to sail far. Yeah, like a lot of novels, far. It told me so much about life. Life at these, and this is a key word, intensities became scenes. So something that's not an intensity is not a scene. But the great thing, the immense illumination, was that we could make them or not as we chose. So making a scene is what artists do. And we might say, well, of course they do, but James means it in some rather deep and revelatory way. Both Cole and Robert Montgomery Bird, in their own ways, make scenes. They give us a distinct portrayal of locality. One of Edgar Allan Poe's I think brilliant complaints about James Fenimore Cooper, for example, be like reading one of these Cooper novels and saying, you know, after 500 pages, I still cannot get in my mind, like, where is this hut? I can't picture it. I don't know where it is. I mean, it's a very legitimate criticism in the midst of a mixed review of Poe of Cooper. Whereas, these guys make scenes. I mean, it is really, everything is soldered in. And though their politics and their aesthetics are different, um, though there's a difference but, and media are different, though Cole's wan, suffused, beatific light of Europe is one thing, and Bird's um, angular black and white and gray world of Philadelphia is another, they're both expert scene makers. But here we come to the other half of the James formulation here, which is Marie, who would go on to be married to a colonel in the Union Army who saw his first significant action at, on the first day of Gettysburg. Amazing, like the James family just all connects to like deep rivers, aquifers of American experience. Marie, remember, was, was raising a scene, and there was a kind of prohibition, don't make a scene. So as much as this is about architectonics, you make a scene, you control it, you angle it, you shape it, you design it, it's also about hysteria, and a kind of, in gender terms, a, f a feminine uh, hysteria, too. Uh, and I think for James, this matters. So I think of you know, one of James's hysterical heroines uh, with whom I particularly identify as the governess in his great short novel called The Turn of the Screw, a late 19th century illustration for which is on the screen. So from the or original periodical serial publication of Turn of the Screw in Collier's in 1898, the governess, Miss Jessen, there to help a couple of little kids, a boy and a girl, Flora and Miles, in a remote English estate called Bly, B-L-Y, begins to become convinced that she sees the ghosts of the dead former servants, Peter Quint and Miss Jessel. And this is probably the iconic primal scene in The Turn of the Screw, which is seeing Quint on the tower is and, and there's the governess who's just rounding the corner, minding her own business. And you see this bush, like that says it all about 
you know, the explosion into her consciousness of this man who's very seductive and strange and sexual and, you know, with a kind of Jamesian subtlety appears just for a moment on that big phallic tower. So is, does, does the governess have her own emotional life outside of her supreme loneliness there at Bly? No. Does she have a partner? No. She's kind of, it's, we're led to believe she's hysterical. She has, uh, she's causing a scene. James is able to make a scene by inhabiting her consciousness so fully. And on it goes, the governess descending the stairs one evening encounters Quint again, washed in the moonlight, moving through the windows in this kind of plasma of smoke and uh, curtainy light. And then again, out by the lake on the grounds, which she's taken to calling a sea or ocean with her little charges as they do their geography lessons, she drops to the ground on her face at the apparition of Miss Jessel, the dead uh, female servant, with the two trees here in there. And the, the artist, whose name is Eric Pape, P-A-P-E, is very good at anthropomorphizing nature to suggest the kind of emotional cataclysm or devastation of this experience. Scene making, working in the brain, in the skull, in other words, for James as much as for Bird, is about hysteria, about precipices, about edges, deliria, as it is about order. It's not one and it's not the other. Artistry in being able to inhabit the consciousness of a character is a kind of madness, a structured madness, so I would just say, for James and for Bird. And there's a funny thing about this, too. It's because it relates to history. You know, don't think, not even for a moment, that I'm to be this person who's apart from all the stuff I'm talking about. You know, there is, if, if this structured madness is connected to art and literature, I would say there's nothing more mad than being a historian. <laughs> Though its dignified guises are numerous and often um, genuine. But that if you really ask what a historian does, they do something like what the governess does there at Bly. You know, as a governess, I give her poor marks. Um, you know, I think if she were a student, I, I wouldn't give her an F, but I would give her a DNP, which means did not pass, which is contemporary parlance for an F. Um, but as a historian, I would give her an A. You know why? Because out of her hysteria and her kind of overcooked imagination, and I must say her feminized imagination, and I think my own historian's persona is very androgynous, it would be um, she, she knows that something bad happened there at Bly, and she's right. It's never quite said what, but were Quint and Miss Jessel carrying on, sleeping together, kind of flaunting their sexuality in front of these little kids? Maybe, how did they die? What was that about? There's something bad happened here. And the only person who can sense it is a hysterical person who's kind of quivering or alight with what has happened. There's Miss Jessel 
in the amazing 1961 British movie by Jack Clayton, directed by Jack Clayton and starring Deborah Kerr as the governess called The Innocents. Uh, did you know what else about being a historian that the governess models so well? Only she sees what is true. Flora brought in the little pavilion by the lake directly in front of Miss Jessel, who's someone that she, Flora, the little girl, knew so well. The governess, you have to imagine Deborah Kerr is just saying, look, look, right there. And then what she says in the novel and in the movie, as big as a blazing fire, right there, right there. So hysterical, right? Because does Flora, does Flora see her? No. It's only in the governess's mind. But I would suggest, or so I often think, that rather than imagine this as a, just a failing and a kind of overactive imagination, it's almost a perverse proof that the historian walking in places, being in places where there seems to any other pair of eyes nothing at all going on, should yet discern uniquely by some kind of strange uh, revelation what was. So, when I go to historic sites, uh, you know, that often I'm only person who knows that they are a historic site, um, <laughs> like the parking garage on the 900 block of Filbert Street, which despite its eradication of Bird's home, nonetheless offers the peculiar advantage of allowing me to approximate the height of his roof, uh, I take photographs that, um, to the minds of bystanders uh, who've encountered me over the years at similar exploits, uh, make me think that I'm, make them ask me if I'm an insurance adjuster, <laughs> if I'm giving a parking ticket, or if I'm just some kind of weirdo um, making notes about something. And, you know, I think those mischaracterizations in a way indicate the lonely rooftop position of someone who is like a historian, who is there in the presence of something that is manifestly not visible yet is present. And as historians of art, of course, we do deal in things like physical remnants of the past that do somehow make it through the holocaust of time in order to emerge and be present in, in our time. And that's all wonderful, but most of what we deal with is not present such as the entire past, you know, everything. 1830s, thought, feeling, expression, it's all gone, except for maybe just little tips and like bursts and kind of like a little glinting piece of quartz in a field of sand, it's all gone. But yet it's not gone, it's there where it's not. And by an act of hysterical imagination, which is also, don't forget, an act of incredible ordering and structuring, one comes to see or experience the past and to share a kind of connection with Bird that art and history come together, not just in the belatedness of the historian who arrives so late for the dinner engagement, like, you know, 170 years late, I'm so sorry. Um, uh, I, hope you ha I hope you've started the first course. <laughs> um, nonetheless, you know, cannot be understood as just a latecomer to the scene, but in some way as having arrived at the time he or she wishes to visit. It's a very Jamesian notion of history, and I guess I, 
I feel the validity of it. Mines, what is called the ivory tower, the way that a scholar, um, though I am actually just literally like the lowest person in this room right now, which is pleasing to me, um, seriously, is also usually thought to be an elevated figure. And in 2013, the, the extremely distinguished art historian Svetlana Alpers published her book called Roof Life, which is about her life on an upper story, in an upper story condo near Union Square in New York. And she's just watching as in this photograph, which she herself took, very bird-like, um, of the changing shadows of the water towers on adjacent buildings. And these, if you read her marvelous book, you'll, which is an autobiography about having retired from UC Berkeley, from being an art historian, and now kind of being alone in her mountain airy and studying the world, looking at the world, as Bird did, uh, seeing here the infinite uh, kind of um, tokens of that words worthy and uncertain heaven that are the sh changing shadows of the water towers of lower Manhattan. Discernment, looking, revelation, and it's equated with being up in the roof of yourself, at the top level of yourself. And scholars in that way have a vivid place, but so do all of us, really, to the extent in Emersonian terms, we all have our roofs and attics. Bird is a special case apart, as well as perhaps a special figure for what artists and historians do. This is what I mentioned before, the New York Review of Books um, edition of Shepard Lee, published in 2008 with an excellent introduction by Christopher Luby. The image on the cover is, as you might guess, one of Bird's own photographs. It's not one I showed you before. And actually, what it is a photograph of, or a print of, is this. William Sidney Mount's painting, which is at the Art Institute of Chicago, of an after-dinner scene from 1835. Manifestly, like many of other Mount paintings, you know, a, a bar scene, a, uh, inebriation, that's not a hat, but a tankard, a scene of uh, racial hierarchy or separation with the black man having to be over by the door, the end of the workday, something to that effect, uh, drunkenness, raggedness, a homespun American community. Out of which, and the comparison or contrast here is decisive, Bird extracts the one figure. And that right there tells you something about artists and historians then and now. What is it? The art historian or the historian or the artist is someone who is part of a social sphere but is also lifted apart for, from it, or removed from it. And moreover, what we might think of as a hat is, as I said, just a tanker. There's a kind of inebriation that is not separable from dignity in what, say, I do. You know, I mean, again, I'll just say for myself that I have to be crazy to actually wander around empty fields or parking garages and even looking at paintings, finally, if the goal of it is to portray something like the 1830s that's not there, it's, it's a delusion, it's a hysteria even. Um, but it's, it's really structured and it's high up, not in an elitist sense, but again, I would say in a way that, you know, we all, we all feel if we try to honor our emotional and thoughtful life, if we all try to be scholars of our own consciousness. 
That consciousness, as any one of you may realize from just doing the quickest survey of the contents of your own brain on any given day, will know that it is not the stuff of rational taxonomies and neat um, encyclopedic delineations, but is in fact not a mess, but a scatter of different motives and desires. One of the things that really impresses me about Bird's photographs of quaint pictures from his time, such as this one called the Mountain Spring, and this is the negative, so with the Mountain Spring written in reverse there, is the way these ordinary and really rather sentimental pictures become, I would say, through the metamorphosis of his mind, uh, the negative of themselves, and become, if you like, eerie or crepuscular, some kind of twilight version of their selves as this hunter with his hounds is taking a break from his probably Scottish Highlands uh, hunting to slake his thirst by this mountain spring as this maid looks on. But somehow in birds, you know, in the escapade of birds' imaginative transformation, you know, it becomes, at least this picture to me becomes pornographic some, in some vague way, some sexual way. And I haven't really in my worldview of the 1830s talked much about sexuality, but the, the world that is teeming with desires with pictures of desire, with things that, as it were, don't make it into print that are left on the cutting room floor. You know, this is part of what Bird's artistry, his transformation of ordinary, you know, the ordinary platitudes we're given to understand an era by allows us to glimpse. Or my favorite, which takes a little bit of a moment to get your eyes around because the Positive is so um, wan, so washed out, but it's, you begin to see it is a, it is Bird's photograph of a print actually by a Scottish or English artist named William Collins called the Old Fence Gate. So here's a boy riding a fence gate as his buddy here pushes it back away from us and then maybe another buddy is gonna push it forward and there's meanwhile another figure clamoring on, you know, it somehow becomes, you could use your own terms for it, but ghostly strange for us. Um, the artist and the alchemy of his own mind takes a source, a sort of primary material and shifts it into something that is no longer itself. And among the connotations of that mental transmutation in this picture, at least for me, are, I'll just give you three. One is the figure's upraised arms equate or compute back to the picture of the angel I showed you before, as though Bird is saying, as often good novelists do, that there is something angelic about our nature, or if you like, about our childhood in this romantic lexicon, that the sheer pleasure of kind of um, shifting and kind of grinding back and forth, uh, the precariousness of childhood and of sensation is not to be sniffed at or dismissed no matter what the sentimental means of its delivery to us is. But also, I look at the fence here and I see that there's something about uh, limits or um, you know, if you like, you know, kind of um, gateway limits here um, that is also exercising birds 
mind, something, as it were, he dreams about, not just here, but here. And then, you know, always attentive to the way 19th century artists like William Collins, the maker of the old fence gate, um, are basically dealing in this kind of degraded lexicon of once upon a time Christian urgency. You know, I, I for one, can't help but think of the figure with his raised arms here as like Jesus, and then with his buddies, um, for example, this figure and this figure as having analogous postures to the you know, the henchmen who are seen raising the cross in 17th century pictures like this one attributed to Anthony Van Dyke, you know, which creates a whole other drama here that I will just briefly gloss to you as cruelty, um, play. In the mind, we know that what seems like play, that, you know, the world we considered to be as just the occasion for so much small talk and commonplace observation actually contains with it cruel and other forms of, uh, uh, and, and other undercurrents. Uh, I always, I think of, say, the penultimate scene in Thomas Mann's great novel, Death in Venice from 1912, where Tadzio is being really like pummeled by his best friend on the beach there, like having his face driven into the sand almost to the point where Aschenbach, whose own death this prefigures, uh, is, a, is really genuinely alarmed for this boy that he has such a deep uh, you know, crush on. Um, you know, that, that what Bird's X-ray vision allows us to see is the cruelty that informs our world in, often when it's purporting to be most playful and generous. The historian and the artist living in the attic of their minds uh, come up with things, they purport to see things as they are. Are they counterfeiting this? Is what they say, is what I say, a kind of true currency? I think Bird is not the only figure among novelists who deals in the fine line between fiction and falsehood. And I would not put it past Robert Montgomery Byrd, polymath that he was as he was photographing notes uh, to be thinking, I wonder if, I wonder if uh, I could, you know, photograph money. And the artist and the historian as counterfeiters, I think you have to live close to that sense of, um, not being sure what is the true currency, but also trusting in your own honesty that the investigation of the counterfeit and of the non-authentic is yet a part of your deeper investigation into an honest investigation into how your mind works and therefore with what concert, in what concert it can make contact with the past. So the scholar, the historian, namely me in this case, thumbs through Michaud's North American Silva, the book I started these lectures with back on March 26th, and studies them keenly, admires the um, size of life in the leaf drawings and the pages contained therein. And turning the pages is amazed to find 
the actual leaves portrayed sometimes, tucked into the pages, interleaved in the pages by the original owner, who in my case was a Navy officer in the 1840s. The historian, like the artist, tries to make contact with life. The historian, like the artist, believes that the separation between representation and the world itself is no doubt a legitimate one and is deserved of being policed and bounded by all kinds of fences and prohibitions, and yet finally, in the deepest sense, should be one in which there is no separation, that life and art can come together, and when they do, turning the pages, it's the historian's special and, if you like, hysterical revelation to feel that that was, that this is the truth. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.